All right, good evening, everybody. If you would, as we kind of get settled, would you join me in the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, by way of introduction to our 17th installment through our study in Ezekiel. Proverbs 2, and when you have Proverbs 2, would you join me in standing in the honor of reading of God's word? Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 is a type of proverb uh, known as an accelerator. There's different types of proverbs, right? There's uh, like compare-contrast proverbs, you know, uh, the, the wise holds his tongue but the fool speaks and, you know, right? There's these kind of like this is an accelerator, and what that means is that, it's, that each phrase is accelerating and building, if you will, to a climax. They're building on top of each other to the climactic ending. Within each chapter of the book of Proverbs, there are many different Proverbs. One through five represents a, a whole of chapter two. So let's read it together just by way of introduction. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, and here comes the climax, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to you this evening uh, once more to sit at your table. Uh, The table that is your inexhaustible bread, the manna from heaven, your holy scriptures. Uh, Admittedly tonight, we're we're going to attempt um, to take a big bite of some very obscure manna. And... um, And Lord, we will leave only confused and with the feeling that we've wasted an hour of our lives uh, if your spirit does not enlighten our minds and if we are not prepared to engage in that type of search described here in Proverbs 2. And so help us accordingly. Give clarity to your chosen mouthpiece. Give understanding to our ears and burn in our hearts as your spirit enlightens us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Proverbs 2. Did you notice uh, the way the, the statements sort of built? They build in intensity. Receive my words, treasure up my commands, Make your ear attentive, incline your heart, right? Inclining your heart is a little more intense than just receiving words. Now, verse three, you're calling out. Now you're not just listening. You're not even just sort of kind of leaning in. Now you're calling out and asking for clarity, raising your voice. Now, verse four, you're on a treasure hunt. 
you're digging and mining as if perhaps just on the other side of the next overturned stone is a precious, priceless, hidden treasure. Do you see the the way that those statements build? If you'll do that, then verse five, you will receive the, the fear of the Lord. And as we know in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Not just knowing information, but knowing how to live God's way in God's world. That, friends, is what we're going to have to do tonight. Because we're going to attempt to fly over seven, ver- seven chapters of Ezekiel. This isn't merely for time. It's because these seven chapters represent a unit. They represent a chunk that have one sort of holistic theme. And in order to not get lost in the weeds, the best way is to take them as a whole. So I want to just ask you by way of introduction to be prepared to do that tonight. I promise I won't torture you with meaningless and mindless detail Kids, don't laugh. Where are my children? My children, yeah, there's one of them. They might snicker at that. I promise not to bore you with meaningless detail when at family worship I stop the scriptures for the hundredth time and I go, you know, (laughs) there's this rock. And they're like, come on, dad, right? So anyway, I won't do that to you, but you meet me halfway and let's, um, let's at least attempt to engage the treasure trove of scripture in that vein in that Proverbs 2 style learning. Now with that by way of introduction, I wanna invite you to turn to the right, just a few books to the book of Ezekiel. Go past uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you'll hit Ezekiel. Join me in chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Everybody there? In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. Most likely, it's Mount Moriah, the, the, the mountain upon which Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac before he was rescued, and the mountain upon which the temple was built, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, verse 3, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. It's two two measurement tools. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. 
Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. After those dramatic verses, it gets real like engineering building codes in a hurry. Verse 5, behold, there was a wall, and around the outside of the wall, the temple area, the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. This was a historical, it was the king's cubit, the king's measuring tool, what it became known as, to make consistent buildings. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, one height, one reed, Read one read in the height, one read, and then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one read deep, and the side rooms, one read long, one read broad, and on and on it goes like this for two whole chapters. All right? Now, I say that not dismissively, only simply to say, if we were to attempt to even read this together tonight, that's all we would have time to do. But this is what it is it is the specifications, the very specific building details of a new temple delivered to Ezekiel through a vision. The vision being so real that Ezekiel describes himself as being, as being transported from where he was to Israel. Chapter 40 begins this description of a new temple of God. As you know from our study, the temple built by Solomon was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his army in the third invasion of the southern tribes of Judah. Fourteen years later, Ezekiel has this vision of a new temple. This description of a new temple, a new priesthood, a form of worship is all described in verses chapters 40 through 46. The best approach is to see these chapters as illustrative of spiritual truths. The best approach is to see these chapters as illustrative of spiritual truths. In these chapters, we will briefly observe that God will provide a new temple, a new priesthood, a new worship system that is rooted in the old, but totally different from what Israel had known. Rooted in the old, but totally different from what Israel had known. The temple that is described here in all these measurements is not Solomon's temple. The temple described here are not the measurements of the temple that Ezra oversaw when the captives were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. The temple described here in these measurements is not the temple that we read of in, in the first century when Herod expanded and Jesus taught. No, it seems that this temple in these specifications has either not yet or won't be built. This temple either will be built someday or possibly both and. It is illustrative 
of a spiritual truth. So we will not speculate tonight on potential what might be's. We will explore these chapters as though they symbolize important spiritual truths. Now, going back to last week, the defeat of Gog and Magog. We talked about how it might be this, it might be that. But what it definitely is, Gog and Magog of chapters 38 and 39 represent the united forces of evil coming against the people of God. The forces of darkness united against God and his people. We see a battle like that at the end of the millennium, but we see a battle like that raging even now in the spiritual places. We certainly saw a battle like that waged and won by Jesus at the cross. The forces of evil united against the people of God. God's defeat of Gog and Magog is followed immediately by the restoration of Israel and a vision of the rebuilt temple. The point of that last battle in 38 and 39 is to highlight God's defeat of those forces of evil. It is to show his absolute and all-encompassing victory over evil, seen prophetically as though it were accomplished a real war waged with real soldiers. It is punctuated by the statement from last week there at the end of chapter 39. God's triumph over sin and death is so complete his people don't even remember the shame of their human failure. They won't even remember their shame. So pervasive, so invasive is God's triumph over sin and death. That is, people don't even remember the shame of their human failure. Now the point of this is to point out how God restores. How God restores. Ezekiel 36, God replaces a hard heart with a soft heart. Ezekiel 37, God turns dry bones into a living nation resurrected by his own breath. And for the Christian who is familiar with the book of Ephesians, the idea of what was dead coming to life should resonate. Ephesians 2, you, Paul says, were dead like the valley of dry bones, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive through Christ Jesus. The way that God made that valley of bones come to life, he made us sinners go from spiritual deadness to spiritual life by breathing his breath into them the way that he, or into us, the way that he breathed life into Adam. The way that Jesus breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is how God restores, you see? A new heart, 
a resurrected body, right? Is he 36, a new heart? 37, resurrected dead bodies. 38 and 39, he defeats your enemies. Of course, that's what Jesus did at the cross. He defeated the enemy. And now, 40, the Lord restores the people to the land. If you will, friends, if you're seeing this progression, I I hope that you are, what we're looking at is we're looking at essentially God unwinding the history of sinful humanity. It's almost like he's systematically taking everything back to the Garden of Eden. Coming back to a land from which you had been expelled, right? Like the garden. What's gonna happen in that land? Well, we'll see it in the closing chapters of this section. God dwells with his people, like in the garden. If you look at the description of the temple in these chapters, you'll see them ornamented with palm branches and flowers like a garden. God breathing breath into the life of unanimated flesh like in the garden. You see? This is God restoring mankind and what we're doing is we're reading about it through the through the lens of a nation who has was literally dispossessed from their land their temple was literally destroyed they're going to be literally allowed back into the land to rebuild said temple and God will dwell with them there but it's all a big spiritual lesson this is how God restores Not only the means, the new heart, the new body, the new land of promise, if you will, but also it's complete. It's it's absolute. There's no question as to the status of God's people when they've been remade and redeemed and restored in him. That's why John writes his letters to the church. He says, I'm writing to you this to you so that you may be sure. Because we have a tendency to waver. We doubt. We wonder. We sometimes aren't sure. And John says, I'm writing so that you will be assured Well, a new heart, a new body, the defeat of your enemy, and now this, if you will, final vision, the vision of the restoration of his people. This is perfectly in keeping with the rest of Ezekiel's visions. First, God God showed himself to Ezekiel in a vision in chapter 1. It was God himself, his very presence. Then in chapter 8 and 9, Ezekiel's had a vision, and it was the temple being desecrated by idol worship, syncretism. He saw a vision of God's glory leaving the temple and actually mounting on that that majestic cart from chapter 1 and coming over to be with his people in exile. 
the last time, in fact, Ezekiel was caught up in a vision to see the land of Israel, it was when the temple was being defiled and God's glory was departing. Now, after all that's happened in those middle chapters that we've studied together, including God's judgment of the nations, the resurrection of the heart, the reanimating of human flesh, the defeating of the forces of evil, now he's back and the temple's being remade. See, friends, this is not Philippians chapter 4 easy. It's not. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, let's talk about that and the context and what it means and how you can take it and you can go tomorrow. It's not low-hanging fruit like that, friends. But what we're observing in Ezekiel is beautiful, wonderful, gospel-centric, and it's the kind of stuff that only God can do. Anybody can rebuild a building but only God can breathe life into a whole nation of people who are not just injured, not just dead, but decayed and rotted and just a bunch of dust and bones. So this is what we're observing, friends. We're observing this remarkable reversal of all that has happened in the history of sinful mankind. And what God is doing is he's bringing everything back, if you will, to the way it was in the garden. Each of Ezekiel's previous visions have come to pass. He saw the temple being desecrated, that was happening. He saw God's glory leave, that was real, that happened. He foretold the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that happened. He foretold of the king relying on the army of Egypt, but that they would be defeated, that happened. And so if you're sitting around with Ezekiel, 14 years after the fall of the temple, when remember that man came, that single lone survivor who escaped and made the 600-mile trip from Jerusalem to the Chibar Canal in Babylon and said, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is in flames, all hope is lost, our national identity has fallen. 14 years later, you're sitting with Ezekiel going, bro, you're batting a thousand. What do you got today? I have, a, I have a, a five spot, right, that I'm gonna bet whatever you say happens because you're, you're killing it right now, right? We've got, we've got this guy over here, you know, Bing Bam and, and Juba and, and Chicken Chicken over here, all these guys have been prophesying as well, but you're the only one who's getting them all right. I'm putting my money on you. Do you get the point? Okay, 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, Ezekiel says, guess what, everybody? I saw a new vision. And everyone's like, oh, what can it be now? You know what I mean? I mean, shoo, everything's burned, everything's gone. What is it now, Zeke? And he says, 
I saw a valley of bones rattling and coming together. God said, speak to them, breathe on them, and they came to life. Wow, what else, Zeke? I saw the united forces of evil against God's people defeated in an epic battle. What else? I saw the temple rebuilt, restored. I went around with this angel. He was glowing in bronze, and he was measuring this gate and that gate. These are all parts of the city and the temple that the people would recognize. We were in this part of this, and in this room over here, and we measured this wall, we measured that wall. Not only did I see it, it's like I touched it like I was there. It was rebuilt. You know the pile of rubble? It was rebuilt on the very mountain. It was perfect though. If you read the description of all of the measurements, everything is a perfect ideal, everything is a square, everything is absolutely symmetrical. It is perfect construction. There's no flaw, it was absolute perfection. So wait, Zeke, are you saying that our nation's gonna come back to life like that valley of bones? Yeah. Are you saying that all the forces of evil are gonna be vanquished by God? Yeah. Are you saying that, are you saying the temple's gonna be rebuilt and we're gonna get to go home? Yeah. Well, everything you said before this came true. I'm gonna believe that everything you said after is gonna come true too. You see this, friends. It's wonderful. Can you imagine being among the, the exiles in the 25th year of our exile? 25 years, that'd be a long time to be in captivity, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you know, my, some of my younger kids have We've been at Hillcrest now for seven years. They, don't, they only know life, you know, in this circumstance. Because, you know, all, most of Jake's life, I mean, all he, all he knows is living on Monarch Drive and coming to Hillcrest. Can you imagine 25 years? I mean, a whole generation would grow up and all they would know is being an enslaved people in a foreign land hearing stories about former battles and hearing stories about you know uh, the you know the 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 olive orchards and the grapevines and Solomon's temple never seen it just heard about it and everyone seems so down and two and a half decades in Ezekiel says God showed me we're going home that would be a salve on a desperate soul, wouldn't it? Well, if we're going to organize our thoughts over a few moments, we're going to organize them this way. Number one, chapters 40 through 42, the new temple. Ezekiel shows them the new temple. We're going home. When, um, when the, the Holocaust took place, 
among the various items that were found in the concentration camps where so many Jews were slaughtered, you've probably seen the images or even the bronze sculptures of things like the piles of shoes, the mountains of suitcases. Well, one of the other things that was very common that was collected from the people were house keys. They took their house keys because they expected to be going home. They thought, okay, there's a war, we gotta run, but we'll be back, lock the door, bring the key. That would not have been different from the way that the captives in Babylon left Israel 25 years previously. There's a war, we gotta go, lock the door, bring the key, right? After two and a half decades, those keys would probably start to look sort of foolish, wouldn't they? And so the vision of a new temple While for me and you, friends, on a yearly reading plan, we're going to come to Ezekiel chapter 40. If we're faithful enough to read the whole Bible, we're going to come to it, and we're going to read all the measurements, and we're going to go, whoo, glad that's over. (laughs) That was boring. I love you, Jesus. But that one, whoo, those chapters were brutal. But the Hebrews wouldn't read it like that. The Jews wouldn't have received it like that. Wait, how big was this door? How big was that door? How big was this room? How many cubits was that room? And they're constructing it in their minds. This is the hope of their national identity. And friends, this is the great spiritual picture that for God to give a vision to his prophet of a new home and a rebuilt place and say to his prophet, tell my people that there's a home for them, there's a place for them, there's a building for them to come and dwell and worship me. Tell them it exists. It will be their hope. It will be the hope of their future. And friends, what did Jesus say? In my father's house, there are many rooms, right? I go to what? Prepare a place for you. Was Jesus not a prophet? Is he not the prophet of God? Is he not the final prophet? Did he not fulfill and complete and close the office of prophet and priest and king? Yeah. And so God said to his prophet Jesus, tell my people that there's a place for them a home, a future, where they will live, where they will dwell, in safety and security. Their enemy will have been vanquished. Their dead bodies will have been, come, have been coming back to life, and their hearts will have been being remade. Isn't this wonderful, friends? 
See, we read these chapters, and it's, it is dry. I'm not going to lie to you. But beneath the surface, there's a treasure. The new temple is set in contrast to the old. Back in chapters 8 through 11, the temple is being defiled by the priests and vacated by God's presence. Here, it's the reverse. God says, there will be no more defiling of my place. Turn with me to chapter 42 to see this. Pardon me, I believe it's the beginning of chapter 43. Chapter 43, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It's just like the sound that he heard in chapter 1. He was coming from the east, the direction that God departed. God departed the east gate from Israel back in chapters 8 through 11, and he traveled east to Babylon to be with his people. Behold, God is coming from the east toward the west from Babylon, geographically speaking, to Israel. God's coming back. His glory is returning. And verse three, the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chibar Canal and I fell on my face. This was just like every other time. Remember, and those things came true. Surely so too will this one. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple there. So if you're taking notes, that's number two. First of all, you have a new temple. Number two, you have the return of God's glory. The temple is rebuilt, but what is a temple without the glory of God? How many of you know the story of of Ezra and Nehemiah? They rebuilt the temple, but what happened when they did? There was not this rush and this flood of the manifestation of the presence of God, and the old men who had seen Solomon's temple illuminated with God's glory, they mourned because this was not like it was before. But here in this temple, this temple is rejoined by God's glory. Verse six, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple and he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more, look, they shall no more defile my name. They did before, they won't now. Not in this temple, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. That's all the idolatry. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, that means reducing the house of God to something common, like a house for a man with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. 
So what was happening before at the old temple that was destroyed won't be happening anymore, not in this new temple. And the promise is that this is everlasting. He says, I will dwell with them forever. He ceased dwelling with them in the old temple, but he will never cease dwelling with them in this temple. As for you, verse 10, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be, look, ashamed. You would think that they might have hope. No, describe to the house of Israel the temple that I showed you that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and that they shall measure the plan. And look, if they are ashamed of all that they have done, Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, that is its whole design, and make known to them as well as all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple." The return of God's glory comes along with what? None else than the shame of what was before and a commitment to purity going forward. This is total restoration, friends. The glory of the Lord returns. It fills the place just as it filled the tabernacle in the desert. It filled the temple Solomon built. The glory of God fills this place, this new temple. Total restoration of God's people, not partial and not begrudging. It's one thing for God to say, you can go back home now. It's another thing for God to say, you can rebuild the temple now if you want. But it's a whole different thing for God to say, I'll dwell with you again, right? Total restoration. Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for him. This is the salvation that God offers. It's it's total, it's complete. This is the restoration God offers to you from your sin and your sinfulness and your old former ways and your old sinful habits and your selfishness. Complete freedom. That's why Paul says, give no quarter to the flesh. It's total restoration of the man, total restoration of the people of God. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame, how do they respond? They will leap like a deer. They don't just walk. They don't go, oh, cool, I can walk again. I'm gonna stroll down the street. No, they jump. They do athletic feats. Why? Because they will, like Isaiah 35, shout for joy. It's complete. It's whole. Uh, One of the best pieces of advice I got as as a, a young dad, uh, came from uh, an article by John Piper and he was talking about spanking and about how corporal punishment is good. And you know why? Because it's dealt with, you deal with it, and then you restore them and then you move on. As opposed to this, go to your room, we'll talk about it later. You're grounded for a couple of weeks or we'll go, and, and, they, and the child just lives in this constant state of like animosity with you because they have wronged you and it just lingers and lingers and lingers. But corporal punishment, all right, 
You're going to have to suffer the consequences for your actions. This is going to hurt. And as my dad always said many times, many, 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 many times, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. I never believed him. But what's the point? The point is you, you experience the consequence and then, then you hug him. Then you love on him. And you look him in the eye and you say, I love you. I love you, son. You're my boy. This was necessary. But now, it's done. Now let's go. Let's go forward. This is the restoration that God offers his people. Not, you can go back to the olive groves, you can go back and rebuild your houses, but I'm still watching you. Right? No, it's, it's whole, it's complete. I'll dwell with you. In fact, later on, you see that the gate, the east gate is locked. The east gate is locked. No one can come in or go out from the east gate except for the prince, and the prince is Jesus. Why? Because God says, never again will my presence leave my people. And it's fascinating because that's what Paul says about when the church goes to glory, that when, when we go and we are raptured up, we, when we are caught up to be with him, he says we will never not be with him. Why? Because the east gate from which God's glory left is shut and locked and no one comes or goes except for Jesus himself. He sits there and he eats. That's what it says in Ezekiel. The prince eats in the gate that's locked but God's presence doesn't leave because he says, I will dwell with them forever. All the sin, all the past, it's expelled. The people are ashamed, meaning they are genuinely repentant. They are broken hearted. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So you look again, verse 11, if they are ashamed of all they have done, if they're truly repentant, not remorseful alone, not regret, no, 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 brokenhearted. If they are, then they will be restored. In fact, the whole point of this is, God says, my wrath has been satisfied. I promised in Deuteronomy, if they came into the land that I was going to give them and they sacrificed to other idols I was going to use a foreign army and I was going to drive them out from the land that I gave to them I promised that in Deuteronomy over and over and over again and in Exodus and in Numbers (laughs) and I have come through I poured out my wrath I spanked my children but if they are ashamed of all they have done if they are truly broken and contrite and repentant from their sin then my wrath is satisfied. I'll scoop them up. We'll go over here and look, we'll never do this again. Never again. This is what John was talking about when he said that Jesus is our propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. And you go, okay, that sounds good. It means he is the satisfaction well, okay, that sounds good too, but it doesn't, still doesn't make any sense. It means God 
doled out the consequence. He is satisfied, and upon the basis of genuine contrition, there is total restoration. Do you see it? It's the gospel in Ezekiel in seven chapters of mundane building codes. How? Right? But it's there. It's there. And then look at the results. Get down with me down to verse 26 of chapter 43. This is the result of all of this. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar. What seven? The number of completion. So seven days of atonement, complete atonement. What is Jesus? He is the complete and perfection of atonement. The Passover lambs merely pointed to the atonement. Jesus is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who makes complete atonement. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it and consecrate it. And verse 27, when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, what's the eighth day? The eighth day is Sunday, Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the grave. The seventh day is the Sabbath day, Saturday. The eighth day is Sunday. From the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and look, and I will accept you. It's a Hebrew word, ratzah. It means take pleasure in. This is how God restores. So that's the third thing. If you're taking notes, it's the people restored. And you can highlight that verse as kind of the key verse. Verse 27 of chapter 43. I will accept you. Okay, this is it. Last little thing, and then I'm gonna, and then I'm, we're gonna call it. Okay? At the beginning of the evening, I said this. The best approach to these chapters is to see them as illustrative of spiritual truths. I think we've, in some form or another, managed to observe that, correct? In some broken, nonsensical way, perhaps, we saw these gospel glimpses. Let's go back to chapter 40, verse one, and I just wanna point one thing out to you, and then we're just gonna call it. In, in very sort of unceremonious, undignified fashion. Back to chapter 40, verse one. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year. When's the beginning of the year? Is it the middle of winter? Or when's the beginning of the year for the Hebrew people? It's in the spring, that's right. What's the first month of the Hebrew calendar? It's called Abib or Nisan, right? What was to mark the beginning of Hebrew of the Hebrew calendar? Anybody remember? It was established when they were still in Egypt. What was it? Anybody know? Throw it out. The Passover. God says, this is the first month for you. Other people say this is the eighth month or the fourth month or the third month. This is your first month. This is the beginning of your calendar year. On the 10th day of the month, pick a lamb, bring it in the house. 
in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of, of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, on the very day when the Passover was to be begun. On that very day, Ezekiel says, not approximately, not roundabout, thereabout, on the very day when Israel was supposed to be picking a spotless lamb from their flock and bringing them into the home to live in their home, be examined by them for four days. The children would become accustomed to the little lamb being around. They probably would name it and cuddle it like we do with our little chickens. And what was God doing? He was initiating their salvation. What's God doing here in Ezekiel 40? On the 10th day of the month, at the beginning of the year, God was initiating their salvation. Amen? So there you go. The best way to approach these chapters is to see them as illustrative of spiritual truths. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for this, if you will, long and winding road we've taken through a couple of chapters in Ezekiel. Lord, the truth is, they're hard. Um, But if we're willing to engage the mind for just a few moments, I think we see clearly that there are some amazing spiritual truths that come to the surface. And so Lord, help us to retain them. And as we do, may we glory in the long-laid plans that you made to rescue us from our sin. The whole Bible is about your grace, about you rescuing us from our sin. In all of these varied and cloaked and illustrated ways, it's all about how much you love us and how you long to restore us And how all you're asking in return is for brokenness. And what we receive in return is the type of total and complete restoration that is described here in these obscure chapters. Help us to see and to appreciate, to meditate on and be glad. In Christ's name, amen.